welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, where we will discuss high yield concepts for students on their anesthesia rotation. I am your host, Scott, the fourth year medical student. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. And today we're going to talk about ultrasound for anesthesia. Uh, if you listened to the previous episode on ultrasound basics, um, I did mention that we're going to talk about the fast and rush exams, but I figured I'll give you the most high yield exams first, uh, such that I'm going to talk about the basic echocardiography and ultrasound guided procedures. And then for a later episode, uh, I'll talk about the fast and rush exams. Um, I just wanted to cover the absolute must-know ultrasound for for your rotation. And most likely, if you're on an anesthesia rotation, you're not going to do or see the fast or rush exams. Okay? So to give you the overview of this episode, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to talk about the basic echocardiography. Specifically, we're going to do or talk about transthoracic um, this is because I had most exposure to transthoracic, and that's the type of uh, ultrasound that I was able to practice at my school. But trust me, the if you can master this, it will make uh, transesophageal ultrasound like a lot easier. Okay, and uh, we're gonna wrap this episode up with ultrasound guided procedures. With that said, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, so the first part of this episode, we're going to talk about transthoracic echocardiography. And the different components of this section are going to be a basic overview. We're going to talk about the common viewing windows, utilization of color Doppler and echocardiography, uh, give you an introduction to regional wall motion abnormalities, and talk about some other uses of echocardiography in the operating room. Okay, so here's the overview. And as I alluded to earlier, um, there's two main types of echocardiography. One is transthoracic and the other is transesophageal. So transthoracic is the one where, uh, as the name suggests, you're imaging through the thoracic uh, wall. So you have a probe, you put the jelly on, and then you uh, place it onto the patient's chest. And the transesophageal, generally the patient is going to be sedated or under general anesthesia, and you place the probe uh, through the patient's mouth and through the, the esophagus. And you're going to be imaging the heart in two main places, like in the middle of the esophagus or the mid-esophageal views, or uh, when you advance the probe a little bit further uh, into the stomach, and that's like the gastric view. And the probe itself kind of looks like those uh, colonoscopy or endoscopy probes. Hopefully, you get a chance to see it or even like play around with a transesophageal probe in your rotation. But this is definitely something that uh, most anesthesiologists are comfortable of using by the end of residency. So uh, get excited for that. So the main goals for echocardiography anesthesia 
basically is to diagnose any problems that arise in the surgery. Uh, so, for example, if you want to diagnose any problems relating to preload, afterload, or contractility. And it's kind of obvious, but you're going to mainly use the transesophageal probe during heart cases. So, I saw this mainly in uh, cabbages. And this is the coronary artery bypass graph and not the cabbage that grows in the ground. Or if you watch Avatar, like the, the Cabbage Man, it's like, my cabbages. Anyways, moving on. So going back to the transthoracic echocardiography. So there's a specific cardiac mode that you can select and it switches the axis in which it obtains an image. So it literally just flips it horizontally. We talked about using the right hand rule for most cases, but in helping you orientate yourself to where to point the orientation marker. But for cardiac mode, you're going to actually use the left hand rule. And lastly, for transthoracic echocardiography, you're going to be using the phased array probe. And this is due to its smaller footprint, so it's able to get in between the intercostal spaces. And also, it it is a low-frequency probe, so it's able to penetrate uh, the tissue a little bit better and give you visualization of deep structures. Okay, so that was the overview. And now we're going to talk about the common viewing windows for transthoracic echocardiography. Being uh, a very visual imaging modality, I highly recommend that you take a look at the show notes or like the, the slides so you can take a look at what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. And I apologize in advance if it's not the best and clear images because I took them myself. And like there's drawings in this thing too. And I drew these myself because I didn't want to like get into any copyright issues. So sorry if it doesn't look that great on the slides, but I think it gets the job done and hopefully you're able to still learn the concepts that I'm trying to uh, talk to you guys about. Okay, so let's talk about the common viewing windows in transthoracic uh, echocardiography. So there are technically four main views of the transthoracic echo. So the parasternal long axis view, parasternal short axis view, the apical four chamber view, and lastly the subsiphoid view. Uh, but we're not going to talk about the subsiphoid view today because we'll save that for an episode on the fast and rush exams. So let's quickly talk about anatomy before we move on to talking about the views. Because if you think about the heart, it doesn't sit directly, you know, uh, midline center of your chest, right? So then it's more towards the left and it's kind of like a football shaped uh, object that kind of sits on top of the diaphragm with the tip facing the anterior axillary line, basically. So in uh, around the line of the nipple, right? So it kind of sits in the chest and rotates to the left. 
And this is important to to keep in mind when you're obtaining uh, the images, because uh, if you, if you think everything is midline, you're gonna have a really hard time getting these images. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense to you. And again, uh, if you want a visual, definitely check out the show notes, and hopefully that would help you out. Okay, so the personal long axis view, you're gonna obtain this by placing the probe on the left fourth intercostal space, uh, pretty close to the sternum, hence the, the, the name parasternal, right? And you're gonna have the orientation marker facing the patient's right shoulder. So what this does is if you think about the football again, you have the football in front of you and you slice it lengthwise. So that's is basically what you're going to obtain uh, when you get the personal long axis view. So again, uh, you slice it in half lengthwise, hence the long axis part of the name. Okay, so when you first look at these echocardiography images, it might be a little confusing. So the best way to learn this is that you just keep practicing. But for now, we'll just talk you through it so you have an idea of what to expect. Okay, so anatomical considerations. So what's the most superficial structure of the heart? If you're thinking right ventricle, then you're correct. So the most superficial structure is right ventricle. And on the opposite end, the deepest structure is going to be the left atria. And this is going to help you out because by knowing what's superficial and what's deep, you're able to kind of figure out what the rest of the structures are in the image. So if you're looking at the parasternal long axis view, from the top of the screen is superficial and bottom of the screen is deep, right? So the first structure you get is going to be the right ventricle. You see like this big uh, little lumen kind of thing in here. And then you get to the interventricular septum. And then you get to another big pocket of fluid. And then that's going to be the left ventricle. And from there, you're kind of uh, orientated enough to be able to figure out the rest of the structures. So you have towards the bottom of the screen, these valves that open into the left ventricle. And what are the valves that open to the left ventricle, they're going to be the mitral valve, right? So what's the structure before the mitral valve? That's going to be the left atria. Okay, so just based on knowing what's superficial, you're able to kind of figure out the rest of the structures. The last structures to, keep, um, to note is going to be the aortic valve and the aortic outflow tract. So you already know the left ventricle and left atria. By following the image, the next part, the left ventricle is the aortic valve and then the aortic uh, outflow tract. Okay, so the next view is the parasternal short axis view. And you're again, you're gonna be in the same place. So the left fourth intercostal space next to the sternum. And all you can do now is you're gonna rotate the orientation marker to the patient's left shoulder. And what this is gonna do is you're going to now take 
short slices of the football, right? So you're going to slice it widthwise with the parasternal short axis view. So there are three main levels that you want to visualize in the parasternal short axis view. Going from superior to inferior, the most superior structure you're going to visualize is the aortic valve. And then you get to the mitral valve, and then you get to visualize the ventricle. And technically, once you're able to get a viewing window, uh, you don't have to move the probe very much to get uh, all three of these levels. So basically, you just need to fan the probe Cephalad or Caudad to kind of uh, get these levels. So if you fan the probe uh, Cephalad or superiorly, you're able to get the aortic valve. And then if you start fanning Caudad, you're going to get the mitral valve and then eventually you get to the ventricle. So something to note if you're looking at the lecture slides is that for the aortic valve, normally you would see something called a Mercedes-Benz sign. And then this is due to three leaflets of the aortic valve opening and closing. But uh, I actually have a bicuspid uh, aortic valve. So when you look at the lecture slides, you're only going to see two valves or two leaflets of the valve opening and closing. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at the lecture slides. And I highly encourage you to Google uh, more images to kind of get an idea of what a, a regular aortic valve looks like. Okay, and the last viewing window we're going to discuss is the uh, apical four-chamber view. And this time, we're going to move the probe to the uh, left fifth to sixth intercostal space, approximately around the anterior axillary line. And the good landmark for, for males, it's right around the nipple. And this is not like a sure thing for everyone, but that's a good place to start. Or another thing you can do is you feel the uh, point of maximum impulse and place your probe there. That usually is super effective as well. And lastly, you can have the orientation marker facing the patient's right. And then when you're obtaining the apical four-chamber view, you're going to have to increase the depth a little bit more because you're trying to cut across the full length of the heart. So you're trying to visualize the ventricles and the the atria. So yeah, you have to increase the depth. And then this view, as the name suggests, is you're going to give you views of all four chambers of the heart, right? So both ventricles and both atria. And you're also able to visualize the mitral and tricuspid valves. And this is like a very super high yield uh, view in both transthoracic echocardiography as well as transesophageal because you're able to see all four chambers and visualize if it's contracting properly. You're able to toss on Doppler to see if there's any uh, regurgitation. So definitely know this view. If you're going to memorize any sort of view, this is going to be it. And plus, it's it's pretty easy to understand what each structure is. So when you're looking at the transthoracic view, the left ventricle is actually going to be 
on the right side. And from there, you're able to uh, use that as an anchor to determine the rest of the structures. So additional viewing windows for echocardiography is the apical two chamber and apical five chamber views. And unfortunately, I don't have images for these because I forgot to take them when I was in the lab. But all you have to do to obtain the apical two chamber view is you first get the apical four chamber view and you rotate the probe 90 degrees. And by doing this, you're able to visualize strictly the left ventricle and left atria. So you're able to visualize both the anterior and posterior walls of the, the ventricle. And this would be important uh, to diagnosing like things like regional wall motion abnormalities. Like, but um, we'll talk about that more in the next few minutes. And lastly, the apical five chamber view Again, you're going to find the uh, apical four chamber view first, and then you're going to fan the probe cephalad, uh, and that brings the aortic valve into view. And that's like usually in, be in between the, like in the middle of the, the septum, so like interventricular septum and the interatrial septum. So that's just a little bit extra uh, for you guys. Okay, so the next quick section is using color Doppler and echocardiography. And as you might know from the previous episode, the color Doppler tells you the direction and velocity of uh, fluid movement towards and away the probe. So uh, we see red. Red stands for fluid moving towards the probe and blue stands for movement away from the probe. And, and a useful function for color Doppler is to visualize any sort of regurgitation that could occur during the case. So in a normal case, uh, if you have the apical four-chamber view and you toss on the color Doppler, you would expect to see red going through the left atria through the mitral valve and into the uh, left ventricle. And then you're going to expect blue going towards the direction of the septum. And this is where the aortic outflow tract is. Uh, and this is if you're um, doing a transthoracic echo. But in cases of regurgitation, you would see the blue going back through the mitral valve into the left atria. And that's indication of a regurgitation. Okay, so the last and pretty high yield section is uh, an introduction to regional wall motion abnormalities. And this is something that, according to one of my attendings, is super important for heart cases because you're able to see any signs of uh, ischemia during the case. Um, but we'll get to that in just a moment. So we're going to spend a little bit of time reviewing the anatomy, specifically the three main coronary arteries of the heart. So you have the right coronary artery that goes along the right side of the heart, and um, then you have the circumflex artery, which goes through the left side of the heart. And lastly, you have the left anterior descending artery, or LAD, and that's going to go over the anterior portion of the heart. But going back to the regional wall motion, 
the basic idea is if there's decreased flow or if there's any obstruction or ischemia of the coronary artery, it'll cause the myocardium to slow down, to not function as well. And you're able to, to visualize this on the ultrasound. And by knowing the territories of each of the coronary arteries, you're able to determine which artery is affected by seeing which wall uh, is slowing down or it has reduced function. And now let's uh, briefly talk about the wall motion itself. So when heart contracts, it actually does so in a multi-dimensional fashion. So it does this thing where it compresses as well as kind of does a twisting motion. And there's four mean uh, motions that the heart undergoes during contraction. And they are the longitudinal strain, uh, cir circumferential strain, strain, the radial strain, as well as a uh, twisting motion. This is important to know, especially the concept of thickening, because during regular myocardial motion, you see the endocardium thicken after uh, each contraction. So if you see, or if you don't see the thickening of the myocardium during contraction, it is a huge indicator that it's not functioning properly and that's going to be an area in which there's uh, a, an ischemic uh, coronary artery or there's an obstruction of that coronary artery. And these next few slides in uh, the, the PowerPoint is going to go over like a visual map, I guess, of where each segment is governed by which artery. But I think I'll skip this in this audio format because this is going to be a lot easier if you just uh, take a look at the slides. But again, by knowing your anatomy, you're able to pretty much understand or figure out the, the distribution of uh, arteries in which part of the heart that it gives the blood supply to. And of course, other functions of the echo uh, can give you things like the stroke volume, cardiac output, and even things like diastolic function by using the pulse wave tool of the ultrasound. But that's uh, another topic for another episode. Okay, awesome. We are on the second portion of this episode and we're gonna briefly introduce you to ultrasound guided procedures. And in this section, we're going to give you like a very brief anatomy review and this is specifically how uh, different tissues appear on ultrasound. Then we're going to uh, talk about the viewing windows and technique. And then we're going to give you examples, specifically the central line and nerve blocks. So for the anatomy review, blood vessels, you have the arteries and veins. So arteries on the ultrasound, you're going to see something that's pulsating, that's circular, and something that keeps a shape even when you compress it. Uh, generally speaking, these arteries have a thicker wall, so it's going to have a so it's going to have a hyperechoic border and an anechoic lumen. 
On the flip side, you have the veins, and the veins compress easily uh, when you press down on it, and it's affected by various maneuvers like the Valsalva maneuver. So then if you, say for example, visualize the internal juggler vein and you have the patient do the Valsalva, you see the internal juggler vein kind of balloon up, get get pretty huge. It's, it's awesome to see uh, if you get the chance. Um, but yeah. And veins not are not always circular like the arteries and it's usually kind of like flat-ish. Okay, so nerves. Uh, generally, nerves appear as hyperechoic, kind of a honeycomb sort of structure, especially you visualizing things like the median nerve or like, I don't know, the radial nerve, ulnar nerve, or like the musculocutaneous or something. Those are pretty hyperechoic and uh, honeycomb-like structures. But some nerves, specifically the ones in the brachial plexus, appear as like a hyperechoic circle. So you're going to have to use a lot of uh, landmarks like muscles to kind of figure out the specific location of it. And also if you toss on a color Doppler, you're not going to see uh, any flow through um, those structures because it could uh, get confused with uh, blood vessels. So for bone, as you can imagine, it's a very dense structure, so it's going to appear as very hyperechoic, right? And then it's not going to allow any ultrasonic waves to penetrate the bone. So then there's going to be shadowing underneath the structure. So it's going to be like black underneath it. And lastly, muscle. It's a hypoechoic on the ultrasound. And you can pretty much tell that it's muscle due to you, uh, the visualization of the muscle fibers and striations. Okay, so the main viewing windows for ultrasound guided procedures is a short and long axis view. And the way you go about performing these procedures is really a matter of personal preference. Some people, they like just, just using the short axis view. Some just like using the long axis and some use a combination of both. So it's going to depend on your attending or resident or when you're practicing how you like to, to do it. But we'll go over both of these views just to help you out with that. Okay, so the first thing is the short axis view. And as the name suggests, if you have the vessel in front of you, you're going to go perpendicular to it and get a circular cross-section of it. So that's the short axis view. And generally speaking, um, for these probes, there's going to be like a, a marker in the center of it to tell you where the center of, of the screen is. So that's where you're going to uh, advance the needle. So you basically, you find the, the vessel and you make sure it's in the center of the screen and then you advance the needle and it should directly guide you to um, the, the vessel. So being in a short axis view and you're introducing the needle perpendicular to it, the needle is going to appear as a hyperechoic dot on the screen. And once you advance the needle to the border of the vessel, you're going to see the, the needle kind of like compressing the, the vessel a little bit. So it's kind of look like someone jumping on top of a trampoline until you uh, completely punctured uh, the needle and you see a sort of kickback once the needle is inside a vessel. 
And in the long axis view, you're going to have the uh, orientation marker facing the, the needle itself. So you're able to see like the full uh, lumen lengthwise. And you're also able to see the needle trajectory uh, going into the lumen. So again, the needle is going to look like a hyperechoic line going through the tissue. And sometimes you're not going to be able to see the needle itself, um, but then you're going to to indirectly visualize it by seeing the different tissues move around the needle. Okay, we're almost done. So let's talk about the central line. So generally speaking, the most common place you're going to uh, put in a central line is the internal juggler vein. And there's going to be three main approaches for this. So there's the anterior approach in which you advance the needle anterior to the sternocleidomastoid or SCM. The central approach, which you go between the clavicular attachments of the SCM and the posterior approach in which you go posteriorly to the SCM. So basically to visualize the vessel and this is after you drape the patient and use like the, the sterile sleeve and sterile ultrasound gel. So you visualize uh, the vessel and then you insert the needle at a 30 to 45 degree angle um, and you visualize the needle puncturing the vessel and then you can aspirate the, the needle to confirm the placement so you'll see blood. And then after that, the part of the ultrasound is done and you just go through the rest of the central line steps. And then I included a video from YouTube that demonstrates the use of ultrasound guided central lines in the, the lecture slides. So definitely take a look at that. And lastly, we're going to talk about nerve blocks, uh, specifically the interscaling nerve block as an example. So for the interscaling nerve block, and this is usually used for any surgeries of the upper extremity, so you can provide like regional anesthesia. So to visualize this, you're going to start over the jugular vein about three centimeters above the clavicle, or you can start at the supraclavicular fossa and scan proximally towards the plexus. So once you're able to get the image, and you're going to look for something called the uh, snowman sign. So it's going to look like three circles on top of each other. And that's going to be in between the medial scaling muscle and the, or the middle scaling muscle and the anterior scaling muscle. And once you find that, you're going to advance the needle through that sheath. And then you're going to apply the local anesthetic. Um, it's important to note that you do not inject directly into the nerve or penetrate it. So if you're too close to the nerve, the patient will often complain of it. it's like, oh, it's a burning sensation or it's a shooting sensation. So if you the patient says that, you withdraw the needle a little bit and move around it to apply the local anesthetic. So again, never directly inject the local anesthetic into the nerve. So like the basic idea is you want to bathe the, the nerve in the fascial sheath in the local anesthetic. And I also included a YouTube video of this as well in the lecture slide. So definitely take a look at that. Okay, that concludes this episode on clinically relevant ultrasound for anesthesia. And today's uh, fun fact is kind of relevant to people like me who are about to um, apply for anesthesia. In the uh, 
in the United States. And this fun fact is Ralph Waters, MD, uh, was the first person to establish the first anesthesia residency program in the United States in the University of Wisconsin in 1927. It's like he originally started practicing in Sioux City, Iowa in obstetrics before he became interested in anesthesia. All right. Thanks for listening. This is Scott, the fourth year medical student, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.